You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School. Reishi is literally made of, of carbon that's been pulled out of the atmosphere. And so the reishi production process itself is carbon negative. It then, of course, ends up moving around the world. Um, it ends up being tanned, albeit with a, a, a very green chemistry compared to what's used uh, for traditional animal leather tanning. But the overall carbon footprint ends up far, far lower than, uh, than that of animal hides and that of polyurethane or PVC leathers. I'm Rebecca Emanuel, and this is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School. We explore the business implications and opportunities of climate change. In this season of Climate Rising, we focus on entrepreneurship tackling climate change. I'm the Director of Social Entrepreneurship at Harvard Innovation Labs. I work with current and future entrepreneurs every day. Today we'll be talking about fashion, but probably not the kind you might be thinking of. The apparel industry is facing growing pressure about the environmental impacts of clothing. This is all the way from the chemical and water that goes into cotton, all the way to the waste associated with fast fashion, where you wear something a few times and then you throw it away. According to an interesting report by McKinsey in 2020, the fashion industry emits as much greenhouse gas as France, Germany, and the UK combined. Our guest, Matthew Scullin, is seeking to address this. He's the CEO of MycoWorks, which is attempting to reduce the carbon impact of fashion. They offer an alternative to leather that's usually made from cowhides or plastic. That alternative is made from mushrooms. His product is called Reishi as opposed to cows or plastic that produce vast amounts of greenhouse gases. Leather made from mushrooms, reishi, produces hardly any. And fashion made from mushrooms has an interesting potential to generate much less waste than conventional leather because it's grown in a laboratory to precise product specifications. Matt has experience in other industries. Most notably, he was the founder and CEO of Alphabet Energy. That venture ultimately failed. In part, that's because he was trying to produce and compete with electricity. And electricity is a product that most customers aren't willing to pay a premium for. But with Micah Works, he's taking a different path. Luxury products. Matt says that can be easier to scale than a commodity business. And he's also using the materials he's creating to create change, not just in fashion, but elsewhere too. In building his company, he works with incumbents. Companies like tanneries that have been doing things the same way forever. And now he gives them new materials to work with that are more sustainable. So I started by asking him why he took his background in material and energy and turned to the work of fungi and fashion. Can you paint me a picture of the setting when you first touched this mushroom leather? And tell me how you got into that room. Yeah, it's... uh... It is a very unique setting indeed. So <laughs> I was introduced to the founders of MycoWorks, uh, Phil and Sophia, through mutual friends. You mean Phil Ross and Sophia Wang, co-founders of MycoWorks? Phil Ross is, is extremely influential, uh, credited as being you know one of the fathers of this field of biomaterials. He, he was one of the first to sculpt with... Um, with biological uh, organisms sort of in the modern times as, as a sculptor uh, 20, 25 years ago. And that led him down the path of learning this organism and figuring out how to make various materials with mycelium. He had built this clean room inside of it where 
he could grow the mycelium. And he had all these examples, these beautiful examples of different mycelium materials that he had made, bricks, foams, leathers, things like that. And um, I was totally struck by the quality of these materials, their durability, their versatility. Could you touch them? Yes. You know, they, they felt amazing. Um, they felt like leather. They felt like other natural materials. And, and so I saw that there was a lot of potential in the technology and then left the meeting sort of thinking, you know, naturally, well, Hey, really interesting materials. I, I wonder if anyone cares. And, you know, lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, Phil calls me up and says, there's an executive from a major luxury brand who's flying in from Europe to meet with me. And, uh, I would love some help in this meeting. Could you come along? And I said, well, that's very interesting, of course. Right. Well, why is he flying over to meet you, Phil? And he's like, well, they, he, he wants, he wants reishi. He wants this material. Um, you know, everybody does. We're, we're inundated with requests. We have an email account with hundreds and hundreds of, of emails from, from household names, you know, name brand fashion designers. And so that is really, uh, an, an unusual situation for such an early stage startup. So I was really compelled by that. And it really began to crystallize for me in sitting down and talking with this executive, just what the potential for this material is. I mean, he said something, said a couple of things that were very remarkable. One is that um, like other fashion brands, they were trying to eliminate the use of their animal hides in the long run, right? They saw that the writing was on the wall, sort of like, uh, how it how it was for fur. And second is that they really despise this typical Silicon Valley story of, hey, we're going to disrupt your industry. And this was something that, you know, I learned doing Alphabet Energy for 10 years is that, you know, this is not tech. This is not situation where you can reach everyone's homes electronically from the comfort of your garage, right? Th these are industries that are tangible, they're humongous, they're aircraft carriers, they don't turn on a dime, they have enormous inertia. And so you have to go in and partner with the incumbents in order to get your technology adopted. And the incumbent was coming to you. Right. And, and so, you know, it was clear that there uh, was a a huge motivation in the industry already uh, to change, but they, they, they also recognized that a disruption story coming from Silicon Valley was nonsense. And I recognized that as well. And, you know, we said, Hey, look, if, if we're going to, if we're going to really have impact, then we have to work with the existing industry. We have to work with existing leather tanneries. We have to work with the best leather producers in the world. And we have to make something that is, as good as what they're making already, you know, consumers and brands don't want to sacrifice performance for sustainability. And that's really, I think, what entering the market in a field like uh, clean tech or materials and in, uh, in general uh, entails is that it's that, you know, these are fundamentally spreadsheet driven industries, whether it's energy or it's luxury and fashion materials. Um, these are things materials have to perform. They have a function. And that performance, yes, it could be measured on things that might seem very qualitative, like hand feel and aesthetic. But the fact is, you know, these materials also have to have durability. They have to have tensile strength. And, and you can measure things like, you know, softness and 
uh, aesthetic uniformity and, and things that um, seem a little bit more nebulous or qualitative. I'd say there are two main challenges in bringing material to market. One is that you, you have to compete with what exists. Yeah, tell me about this. You used to work in a business in energy that was basically competing with commodities. And now you're working in an industry that's luxury, which is about as far as you can get from commodities. Tell me about the difference there and sort of why you chose luxury this second time around. Yeah, well, first of all, it was a very deliberate choice. Uh, you can invest all that time and money in a new material, but at the end of the day, you don't have any pricing power in most um, uh, material markets because you're competing with the the existing commodities that might be in, in the market, like uh, a microchip or um, an advanced metal or ceramic, uh, or in you know the case of of energy, like with a new solar uh, material, or in our case at Alphabet Energy, a new thermoelectric material, you're subject to the electricity pricing that's in the market or the oil pricing that's in the market. There's always a cheaper alternative and it already works and the incumbents already use it. That, that's it, right? You're, you're competing with something that exists and already works. That's right. And so um, initially, you know, any material is going to be more expensive to make than what's already in the mass market, than what's already being produced at scale. It is really hard. And the main challenge that any materials company faces is this uh, classic chasm problem, right? Where in order to have your unit economics really pencil out, you have to achieve scale. And how do you bridge that gap? And, you know, we learned through, um, you know, solar's rise in particular, is that well, you know, you can you can have these really great technologies, but at the end of the day, if China puts way way more orders of magnitude more capital into the scale up, into bridging that chasm with a technology that's much lower risk, silicon, then they'll eat everyone's lunch, right? You'll get to a much lower price point at the end of the day, and that will become the the winning technology. And so um, this chasm problem in materials, I I saw uh, that there could be a solution. If materials could move closer to the consumer, if you could somehow decouple this commodity pricing from the early stages of the innovation cycle. So you want adoption before cost matters. That, that's right. And pragmatically speaking, right, all of these markets that materials sell into, whether it's leather or energy or whatever, they're all massive markets, right? That's one of the most fundamental and fascinating things about materials markets is that they, they are, you know, materials are used in everything. And so that's literally, right, what everything is made of. So the, the markets are all humongous. And so the, the challenge is never finding a, a big enough market or um, the, cha the challenge is actually picking the initial market that has a high price point so that you can have pricing power, you can have gross margin in the early days, and, and that will allow you to get to the next point. So I see what brought you to luxury in your career. What I really like about the fashion and luxury uh, markets is that you do have these structures in place already that allow products to get to market in low volume at a much higher price point, And that actually uh, increases their desirability, right? Limited edition runs of things, capsule collections. Um, and if those are done right, then it offers a very interesting opportunity for a new material to create a big splash, enter the market, um, allow you to 
measure demand, increase demand through the through the um, uh, through the, through having a big splash, through the publicity that they can get, and then from there, use using that traction to go and increase production capacity, bring the uh, cost of goods sold down, and and scale up and reach a larger market. So um, it seemed like a, a very um, you know microwork seemed like a very interesting opportunity to try to take a new material uh, into market via fashion and luxury um, on a path to having this material get into many other markets that are, um, uh, you know, that's, that stand to be uh, disrupted by biomaterials and the idea of, of growing materials rather than getting from other sources. Tell me about that. There are huge advantages to being able to grow a material. Um, and particularly to grow material locally. If you think about a, a supply chain for leather or plastic, right? You're talking about, first of all, um, in, the case of, in the case of animal hides, you're talking about a, uh, a very um, uncontrolled source of raw material, which is your cow hides. So you're sourcing cow hides from different farms around the world. And those cow hides get shipped to different tanneries around the world and ultimately end up in the hands of fashion brands. And those fashion brands then throw out a lot of that material that they buy because uh, first, some of the hides might have mosquito bites or brand marks or other things that make them not usable because they weren't controlled initially for leather production. And then second, you know, the interior of a hide, the belly is going to have a different pattern than the exterior. Uh, the hide is arbitrarily shaped and you have to cut other arbitrary shapes into it. So you end up with a lot of waste. And those waste numbers in the fashion industry are pretty closely guarded secret because they're so high. Um, there's just so much material that isn't used. And that, of course, cuts into the margins of the fashion material, uh, fashion companies producing uh, this material um, and their finished goods. Uh, but it also is just a general inefficiency in the economy. And I think when it comes to plastic materials as well, the, the market for plastic leathers is three or four times larger than the market for animal leathers. So it's quite significant. And combined, you know, the market for animal and plastic leathers is over $100 billion a year. And so with plastic, you know, you're also talking about um, uh, something that, well, first of all, has much lower quality than animal hides, but, you know, is, is, uh, is essentially one thing, right? It can't be can't be tuned or customized in any way. And so in growing materials, it offers the opportunity to first of all grow exactly what you want, exactly what the customer wants. You know, if they need a certain size or certain shape, but moreover, a certain level of uniformity, a certain thickness. Um, uh, those are all basic things that we can offer with Reishi that an animal hide or a plastic can't offer. But then beyond that. You're telling me that if I wanted um, leather for a skirt, you could grow me skirt-shaped shapes? We have shown that, yes, we can grow into specific shapes. But I think more importantly, uh, a different type of leather is used for skirt, for ready-to-wear skirts or, or ready-to-wear than it is for, say, handbags or shoes. So you can grow thicker, thinner, bumpier we, we do grow different materials based on the customer's application. We can tune the mechanical properties of that material um, in addition to sort of the basic size and shape, the, the geometric properties. And then ultimately, 
uh, with the green chemistry that we've developed, which is far cleaner than the chemistry that's used with animal leathers that's typically relying on chromium for tanning, which ends up poisoning um, groundwater and this nasty stuff, uh, we can we can grow materials for a certain type of post-processing tannage or dyeing as well. And so um, it really unlocks all of these possibilities for fashion designers. It allows fashion designers to say, hey, now I can get exactly the material that I want and my designs are not limited by the supply that's available in a given year, a given season. Okay, let me tell you a secret. You don't need to be in a Harvard classroom to hear the best and brightest minds in business. I'm Chris Lenane, host of Harvard Business School Online's new podcast, The Parlor Room. On each episode, I sit down with esteemed Harvard Business School professors to demystify vital business concepts in a way that's entertaining and insightful. We break down academic theory without sacrificing depth. Want to learn how to become a master negotiator? We have the perfect episode for you. Or perhaps the best way to build your personal brand. Yep, we've got that covered too. On each episode of The Parlor Room, you'll gain useful takeaways to navigate the business world from wherever you are. Hear business concepts come to life. Listen to The Parlor Room on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can see why this is someone's creative juices could get flowing here because you're telling me that it's possible to get what you want at zero waste. That's right. And not only is the is the yield effectively higher in that regard, but the carbon footprint is far lower. So there's there's a great there's a great element of of uh, of storytelling, of course, but really, you know, to the consumer, it's about the value system that's behind um, the the goods that they're purchasing. And, you know, as an example, to, to just sort of illustrate how um, how much this industry could Im- could improve, you know, you can walk into a restaurant and know right away when you look on the menu what farm the cut of meat that you want to order is from. And you don't even have to go to a really nice restaurant these days to have that information at your hands. Uh, and I would ask anyone to to try to come up with the farm that their favorite leather good uh, is from, right? We have no idea. And so part of the, uh, the added value of being able to grow uh, your own materials is that you have this transparency through the entire supply chain. You have traceability. You have the ability to go to the consumer and say, look, we know exactly how this material was made. We know exactly where it's from. Um, in the future, we have the vision to co-locate our reishi production plants with our customers' fabrication plants, or at least have them be much closer uh, to the customer, um, which further uh, eliminates uh, a carbon footprint, but of course also allows the customer to react to changes faster and get product to market and new new SKUs, uh, new types of products to market quicker. And so, you know, we really think that the innovation behind growing a material like reishi is more like the woven uh, technology that's taken over the sneaker industry, like 3D knit and fly knit, where now a sneaker company can on demand, um, you know, whip up new styles, zero waste, um, get them into market very quickly. And that's, that's what Reishi offers. It's really an advanced manufacturing technique 
that opens up new possibilities for designers and brands. So Matt, tell me why why is this low carbon? You've talked about maybe it travels less. Also, clearly mushrooms tend to eat dead material out there in the world, right? So there might be some something there. But is it, is it about the growing conditions? What about it makes it lower carbon than a cow? That's right. Well, uh, when we produce reishi, we are using waste biomass. And so that biomass is carbon that has already been extracted from the, uh, from the atmosphere. And so we're converting some of that biomass into our reishi sheet. You're telling me you're capturing carbon? Uh, in effect, that's sort of what biomass is doing, right? And so we're, we are converting that captured carbon in biomass into reishi. So reishi is literally made of, of carbon that's been pulled out of the atmosphere. And so the reishi production process itself is carbon negative in that sense. Um, it then, of course, ends up moving around the world. Um, it ends up being tanned, albeit with a, a, a very green chemistry compared to what's used uh, for traditional animal leather tanning. But the overall carbon footprint ends up far, far lower than, uh, than that of animal hides and that of polyurethane or PVC leathers. Both of which are from classic, right? Cows are a classic issue for carbon and... Yeah, you know, oil right. so, byproducts you know, are a classic issue. Right. And, and so, you know, the fundamental way to think about it is with an animal, you are inputting a lot of carbon into the growth of that animal. And with the reishi process, we're actually converting um, biomass uh, that has used carbon um, that, that, that uh, is made from carbon from the atmosphere into, into reishi. So it's carbon negative. Great. So tell me just a little bit about the characteristics of this thing. You get somehow durability, but also biodegradable characteristics. That sounds sort of like an oxymoron to me. Well, coming back to this idea that these are all spreadsheet driven businesses and that performance is key. The, the focus that we've taken at MicroWorks is to build materials that are of the utmost quality in the industry, right? And that doesn't mean the, Tesla of the best quality. Right, it, you know, that, that's a great analogy. We like that analogy because Tesla did not get adopted because it was an electric car. There were a lot of electric cars before Tesla. Tesla saw adoption and is seeing adoption because it is the best car, right? Because it provides the best overall experience, electric or otherwise, to a driver. And it's because an electric car allows you to have faster acceleration and all these other things that, you know, like growing a material are advantages to the user. And in, at the, uh, at that's, um, you know, to use that analogy, our user in that sense is the fashion designer who sees these added advantages of a grown material versus a, a found or harvested material. Um, but then going to the consumer, uh, a leather, is something that has to be durable. It has to, uh, it has to age. It has to evoke uh, certain emotion, and that's something that reishi can do as well. And that is something that is inherent to this very proprietary fine mycelium process, uh, as we call it. You know, we don't make quote unquote mushroom leather. Um, Mycoworks made mushroom leather many many years ago, and it's what our competitors still make to this day. But we've pushed that process forward and make something that we call fine mycelium. And that fine mycelium has a really tightly interwoven cellular structure. 
that gives it this incredible durability. So we actually um, sort of try to mimic the structure of collagen and skin, which is which is wrapped very tightly and makes skin very tough compared to say just pure collagen that's in makeup or um, another liquid form. So uh, the durability that we get is really the the underpinning of any uh, performance material. And it's what has allowed us to get any commercial traction whatsoever. So consumers, they don't want to sacrifice performance for sustainability. Brands don't want to sacrifice performance for sustainability. So with this approach of putting quality and performance first, we've been able to get traction. And, you know, sustainability for us is just another performance metric now, right? Consumers expect materials to be sustainable. And you have to add that to the list of the other things that they already expect, like strength, like durability, like hand feel, like aesthetics. You know, th this, uh, this is key to understanding reishi and to understanding this fine mycelium process and is why I think, um, you know, not only are we getting adopted right now, but when you combine this high performance with this platform that we have for tuning the properties as it grows, one can see why this could potentially totally transform the fashion industry and lead to new types of supply chains that will allow designers to make fundamentally new things. And so it sounds like you're talking to people who are making decisions because they get their creative juices flowing. They can do this more cost efficiently because there's a lot less waste, a lot less travel. They can get exactly what they want. And also it sounds like they're getting pressure from their consumers. I, I think that there are very significant current tailwinds that are propelling us right now. One of which is the consumer-driven animal rights um, and general sort of anti-animal or alternative protein movement. The second is the very powerful anti-plastic movement. And I think both of these have undergone a significant shift over the past couple of years. I think on the plastics front, it was when all those headlines were hitting about microplastics. And all of a sudden the world realized, hey, uh, plastics are not someone else's landfill problem. They're actually my problem. When I purchase plastics, these things end up back in my food and they become a health and wellness issue. And health and wellness, I think right now, is the strongest uh, sort of secular tailwind in the consumer economy in the world uh, today. And I think on the alternative protein side, what we saw over the past couple of years is the emergence of brands like Beyond Meat and Possible Burger, who... Uh, illustrated very clearly that if you do match the quality of things that are out there, right, if you stop trying to compete with all the veggie burgers in the veggie burger section, and you try to compete with meat, and if you can actually achieve that, then it opens up an opportunity for consumers to be non-binary vegan, right, to not be vegan or not vegan, but to be vegan for a meal. And I think that these, these trends are also propelling MicroWorks because consumers feel the same way about what they put on their bodies and generally about what they purchase. You know, they want, they want things to be non-animal, non-plastic. They want to know they have a low carbon footprint and are not going to be a health and wellness issue uh, either for them or for future generations. But I think what's very interesting about the customers that we have is that while they are under acute pressure right now to respond to these trends from their consumers, they're also under pressure to respond to these broader trends around how do you stay competitive in an industry 
that now needs to get to the consumer faster, needs to supply more SKUs, needs to be more global, and needs to somehow uh, balance and manage these competing uh, shifts that we're seeing around fast fashion uh, being a very powerful force, as well as sustainability being a very powerful force, right? These two things are at odds. We have developed Reishi in close collaboration with some of the best brands in the world. And I think it's really just the beginning of many of the very cool new materials that we can bring to market, both in fashion and luxury and then in other, other industries beyond that. How are you doing on crossing this chasm, speaking about demand? My understanding is you've got a couple factories open and you might have just raised another round to open another factory. Yeah, so uh, we just closed a, a $45 million Series B, and uh, thank you. And we are uh, on a path to opening additional factories, that's right. So we're currently planning on um, opening a couple other factories, uh, both in the U.S. and internationally. So we're uh, undertaking the engineering for those plants right now. And I think that, you know, coming back to the clean tech analogies, uh, one of the keys in uh, crossing the chasm for a materials company is to figure out how you can make your your business and your scale up project financeable, right? And um, partnerships become incredibly uh, critical to scaling up as well. So we have very uh, gladly partnered with a lot of the leather uh, incumbents in the industry, the the tanneries that produce leather. They're key to eliminating bottlenecks in our scale-up. And then we're also drawing on a lot of the technologies that other industries have been using for a long time to move trays around facilities because our process is uh, executed in a tray and our manufacturing is really about handling trays. By trays, you mean like a, a metal flat thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, liter literally a tray. You know, we use these enclosed trays and... Um, uh, our, our secret sauce, the magic in the trays is that we have these trays that we've specially designed and that, you know, Phil, our founder toiled away at for many, many years. And then, you know, we've had a, a huge team of, of biologists and fermentation engineers and mechanical engineers working on improvements to that tray. And we've arrived at a tray that grows uh, a perfect sheet of reishi. Um, and so from a scale up point of view, it's very, very scalable because we can just go and fill a facility with more trays. And the process is fundamentally, you know, simple and inexpensive and allows for- Easier than getting more cows. Yeah, and you know, easier than also changing the size of the tray, right? A lot of materials, in, uh, a lot of materials technologies uh, end up seeing these fundamental limits on their economics because you have to, change their unit cell size, right? Solar, the only way it could get cheap is if you could do much, much bigger areas of material. So a lot of technologies died because it was hard to make them uh, that large. Same with fermentation. A lot of processes can't scale to the 10,000 liter or more size that you need in order to hit um, good fermentation economics. So the tray-based system is very beneficial from, uh, from a cost and a scalability point of view and has us very optimistic about our, our path to, to crossing that chasm, project finance likely playing a, a major role uh, in doing so. 
um, and ultimately, you know, uh, being a very, very massive business. Tell me what advice you would give to others considering a career in climate tech. Well, the advice I'd give to any aspiring entrepreneur is to dive in. Um, there is so much you're going to have to figure out, and there is so much that's going to change that it's impossible to to do any of that without fully living it. Um, you really just have to, to go for it. And um, chances are uh, what you ultimately end up doing could be very, very different than what you initially set out to do. And, and that's a good thing. You've got you've to learn and adapt. And the only way to do that is to, is to jump into the deep end. That's it for this episode of Climate Rising. Next time, the connection between climate change and insurance. So if you think about major hurricanes that hit an area that would have normally not all gotten hit at once, so the entire Gulf Coast doesn't get slammed at once usually. But now with climate change, we're seeing more intense and more frequent storms. And so you'll have more correlated claims that put insurance portfolios at risk. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rebecca Emanuel. This is Climate Rising, a podcast produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. This episode was made possible by the collaboration between this episode's associate producer, Roxanne Tully, HBS Class of 2021, producer Mary Dew, and our team from the HBS Business and Environment Initiative, faculty chair Mike Toffel and Jennifer Nash, Lynn Shank and Elise Clarkson. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback. You can also find show notes and links to resources discussed on this episode on the Climate Rising homepage, climaterising.hbs.edu.